thank you very much for the introduction. My name is Kevin Osnick, and to those that are downstairs, welcome. It's good to see you, and uh, thank you for the invite. Um, head elder, that sounds that sounds lofty. I, you know, I, I hope I can meet up to that standard here. But it has been Davisville that has had a major influence on uh, our family's lives. Uh, when my wife Cheryl and I were, um, we had kids, and they were in uh, junior high. Uh, we actually moved into this area, came to Davisville, and um, it was a youth group that actually got us here. And then as our kids went through the youth group, it was the years after youth group, uh, the post high school through early 20s, mid 20s, that got Ryan and Sarah engaged in, uh, in, in church, really. And uh, so we have a, a lot of, Cheryl and I have a lot of um, strong feelings that what is taking place with your group right here is so extremely important. To be able to get together and study God's word, to be able to go and have community, and uh, it's, it's important. Um, I am married, I said Cheryl is my wife. Uh, we have two kids, they're both married, and uh, we have five grandkids, and uh, just enjoying life immensely right now. But, um, let's go to God's word to this. Well, I do have another question, okay? <clears throat> This, this is a crazy week for Phillies fans and Eagles fans, right? Okay, so here's, here's something I got for you. If the Phillies win tonight and the Phillies win tomorrow night, that means Thursday night they're playing for World Series championship, right? Yeah, I see a woo again. Okay, the Eagles are playing Thursday night to go undefeated for another week. Who's going to watch the Phillies game, and who's going to watch the Eagles game? Phillies? 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 Okay. Eagles? Eagles? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's how I did it. Okay, that, then, then the next question. Are you going to listen to the, listen to the Phillies and watch the Eagles? Or, uh, but we'll, we'll, get that, we'll get down that route later on. I just wanted to see just how many fans do we have. And we had a couple people there that aren't, you know, we're not going to do either one that way. So, yeah, there we go. Hey, let's turn in our Bibles to uh, 1 John chapter 2. And uh, what we're going to do tonight is to take a look at this chapter. And two weeks ago, J.J. Uh, talked and walked you through 1 John chapter 1. Last week, um, uh, you didn't meet up here like this. Uh, so what I'm going to do is just real quickly, uh, 1 John chapter 1. What's, what's the big idea that J.J. left you with? What's the big idea? What stood out to you? Live in the light. Live in the light? Yeah. And, and what's the challenge of that? If we're going to live in the light, what's the challenge of that? Our sin. What's that? Our sin. Our sin, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now here's a question. Uh, how many of you uh, don't worry about that at all? I mean, just no sin there. Yeah, I, I know. That's a dumb question. The, the question is, have you not sinned over the last, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes? I mean, that's, that's really the question. Because when we come to First uh, uh, John chapter 1, what we realize is that God wants to have fellowship with us, but sin gets in the way of his holiness, his righteousness. Uh, we're, we're broken from that. And so we end up ending the first chapter, and we come to that 
if we claim we have are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, you know the verse, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's how chapter N, 1 ends. And um, we move into chapter 2, and John picks that up, and he begins to unpack it. And so as we start chapter 2, I want to give you that perspective, that chapter 1 is that contrasting between the light, God's holiness, and our sin, the darkness. And when chapter 2 opens up, John is going to start to unpack that. So that's the concept that we're going to work off of here tonight. As we work into chapter 2, I want you to take notice of some things, okay? So if you have your, as you're looking through your Bible, take notice of how he begins to use certain terms, like the term, my children, or dear friends, or terms that talk about relationship in chapter 2. And then, as we read through chapter 2, I want you to look for transition words, things like, but, and yet, and especially, we know, okay? So that's sort of the framework that we're going we're gonna to work on here this evening. So let's step into this. Uh, verses 1 and 2. Would somebody mind reading verses 1 and 2 of 1 John 2? Anyone? Go ahead. Um, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Yeah, John makes a transition, and he begins, and he turns around, and he says, My dear children, notice the term of endearment. You're going to catch this. This is not him just putting something out to pick up. He's, he's actually interfacing with people that he cares very much about. My dear children, my friends. He says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. That's the goal, right? What's another word for not sinning? Obedient, obedience, yeah, to be obedient. We're going to see that. Anyone, anyone and one other word for, for not sinning, what would that be? If you're not sinning, it is what? You're what? Perfect. Perfect. Holy. And holy? Righteous. Righteous. All those words that fit in here. Chapter 2 begins with really a purpose clause here. And John says, I want you to know, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but, there's the first but, but, now there's a contrast. When you see a but, there's always a contrast. Okay, I'm going to write this to you so you're not going to sin, but, hey, I know you're going to. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying. He goes on, if anyone does sin, and then he says, you have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ. Let me just stop there for a second. We're all sinners. And we desire to live a holy life, right? I mean, I would think that we're all desirous to live a life that would be pleasing to God, a holy life without sin. But we know that we do sin. And what do we need? John plays out there. What we need is Jesus Christ. Notice how Jesus Christ is defined here. He's defined in three ways, okay? Take a notice of this. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. The first work of Christ that's defined here is that of an advocate. An advocate is one who speaks in the defense of someone else. Um, it's a legal term in John's day. And what it referred to is someone that came alongside of another person as they stood before the judge. 
And as they stood before the judge, the advocate in this court of law would present the, the argument that would turn around and say, this person should be let go or this person should not be found guilty. It's an advocate that is standing there before the judge. It says that we have an advocate with the Father. When we sin, Jesus Christ is our advocate before a holy and righteous God, our Father who is holy and righteous. He talks here about an advocate in this particular place actually speaks on our behalf. Over in John 17, where Jesus is having the prayer with his Father, he talks about how he speaks on our behalf before the Father. Um, other places it's referred, Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 12, Romans chapter 8, all talk about references in which Jesus speaks on our behalf as an advocate. You realize how cool that is? That when I screw up, and I know that I am a child of God, and God is holy, and I am not, that I have before the Father an advocate that speaks on my behalf. Let that sink in for a minute. Um, Jesus Christ is there to speak on our behalf before the Father. But that's not the only word that's used there. He says, Jesus Christ, and here's one, the righteous one. Here's a second descriptor. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What's it talking about here? It's talking about describing the character that governs the nature of Christ's advocacy. You see, if Christ stood before the Father and he was sinful, he would have no right to go and plead our case, would he? Because God is holy. We are not. We need an advocate that can stand and plead our case who is holy. And Jesus is described here as the righteous one. He is faithful to our cause and presents our case faithfully because of his perfection. Now think of that for a minute. <laughs> Not only do we have an advocate before the Father, but he can do so because he's, he's perfect. And then there's a third term here, and it says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Um, the atoning sacrifice, that word, uh, is described here if you used another version, you might see the word propitiation. That's a big theological term. But really what it talks about is that which and the one who can actually take the penalty for. And so what you have here is you have that Old Testament picture. We're going to understand it. You go back to the Old Testament. If you go back to the Old Testament, you remember that over in Isaiah, it says the soul who sins is the one who will die. Isaiah chapter 18, verses 4 and 20, it talks about that. So the sin has consequences. And here we have, we have the atoning sacrifice. Jesus Christ was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What did he do? He goes back to that Old Testament picture. You remember back when the Israelites were ready, the children of Israel were ready to leave Egypt, and the death angels came through, and they said, take that, that innocent, take that innocent animal. You're going to go and sacrifice that innocent animal. You're going to take the blood and put it across the doorpost so the death angel can go over. Remember that story? And then that carried out into Israel's history for every year. They remembered that. And on the Day of Atonement, what happened? They would, every family would bring an animal. That animal would be sacrificed. The blood of that animal would be taken on the Day of Atonement, and the high priest would take that in and place it on the altar, sprinkled upon the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, 
and it was representative of the covering for our sins. Here, it refers to Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, John says here that the blood of Christ, 1 John 1, 9 and 1 John 1, 7, is that which allows us to stand before God as holy and righteous. God himself then satisfied the wrath that we so deserve because of his love, and he braced us as sinners. Now, you take all that, and I said this is a call to holiness. Here's the, here's the question. If I, if I could actually take that in and really think about that, am I then striving for holiness based on my own merit because it's something I to do, or do I strive for holiness because of everything that Christ has done for me? Well, think about that for a minute. Because oftentimes, I want to strive for holiness because I want to be the one to go and stand up and say, God, I'm righteous before you. Why would I want to be holy? Well, because it makes me feel good, because it's something that I don't want to go and hurt somebody else's feelings. I, I, want, I want to be right before God. I, but here's the deal. I strive to be holy not because of what I can do or what I've done. Because John says, I know I'm going to be a sinner. You know, we can confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us. But who stands in that gap to stand before a holy, righteous God and pleads our case? Jesus Christ. And so my desire in life is to go and please him because of what he has done for me and for what he's doing in my life. We sometimes forget that. I do, I, I do anyway. I get so busy doing things, we forget that I should desire to go and live a holy life because of what God has done and what he's doing on my behalf. And that's what the rest of the chapter talks about. Because when you start to look at the rest of this chapter, it all goes back to how do I then test the holiness that I have because of what Christ has done for me. And so let's take a look at that. And what you're going to find here, not only in the rest of this chapter, but throughout chapters 3, 4, and 5 of 1 John, is that these tests for holiness, these tests for uh, what it means and how I can go and live a life that's holy before God, you come up over and over and over again. And there's three of them. So let me just go over them and then we'll take a look at them from Scripture. The first one is the moral test, the test of righteousness, the test of obedience. Um, practical righteousness, not sinlessness, but practical righteousness in which I continue to progress in my Christian life and I can continue to grow. And so my growth in my righteousness matches the conduct in which God asked me to live. So the first test is a moral test. The second test is a social test, and it's the test of love. Am I able to love others? It's my relationship that I have with fellow believers. And then the third test is a doctrinal test. And it's a test that talks in terms of what do I think of Jesus Christ? So let's look at, let's look at these here for a second. In 1 John, we see these tests. Let's begin up picking up at verse 3 through 6. Would somebody read 3 through 6? This is the moral test of how well and how we can go and measure up our holiness before God. Let's look at the moral test. 3 through 6. Would somebody read that? Okay. <clears throat> we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. If anyone obeys his word, the love of God is truly made complete in them. 
This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Okay, so here we see a moral test. And the moral test is whether or not we are able to keep his commands. 23 times, 23 times in this epistle and in this book, we see the word we know, we know, we know, we know. And here's one of those we know moments. We know that if we keep his commands, and whoever says, I will keep his commands, but does not do that is a liar. That's pretty strong terms, isn't it? What, what is the commands of God then? Um, Jeremiah 31, 34 say, says, I will put my law in their mouths and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. What is the commands? What are his commands? It's those things that we find that he speaks in the Old Testament. There are commands that are there. New Testament, we see certain commands that are there. But what we find is it's the knowledge of God. The commands that we're referring to here is the knowledge of God, my ability to know God and to know him more deeply. And here the, John turns around and he says, if we know him, we're going to keep his commands. If we don't know him, and we say that we do, and we don't know him, or we don't go and follow his word, he's a, we're a liar, and the truth is not in us. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? That sets the bar, bar pretty high. And the moral command here is whether or not we are willing to follow what God's teaching is. Now, there is a but in this. There is actually two buts in this particular section, but the one I'm looking at is verse 5. But in contrast to knowing what the commands are and not living them out, the, co the contrast there is in verse 5, if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this we know, that we are in him. Whoever claims to live must live as Jesus did. Two things you see here. Number one is, if we're going to go and be obedient to his command, it demonstrates the fact that we love him and that moral test can be met. The second is, who do we emulate? We emulate Jesus Christ. So if we're going to go and be obedient to him, if we're going to live a life of holiness, it says we become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, there is no true knowledge of God without accompanying righteousness. So as we grow in the truth of knowing God, our lives will be changed. I almost think it's impossible. If we're growing in the knowledge of God, our lives will be different. That's there. Obedience to the word. Obedience to the word is us becoming more like Jesus Christ. That's the first test, the moral test that leads to holiness. Are we engaged in God's word? Are we engaged in becoming more like Christ? As we are, we're meeting that initial test. Second test is found in verses 7 through 11. Would someone read um, verses 7 and 8? Hmm? Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have, that you have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Okay, so we have a moral test. That's being obedient to God through his commands. The second one is a social test. And the social test is a test, really, of, of love. Uh, dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have known from the beginning. 
The old commandment is the message you've heard. What is the old commandment? Well, if we go back and think in terms of the Old Testament, what was the old commandment that we are to have? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And over in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, and love your neighbor as what? Yourself, right? We come to the New Testament. Remember the Pharisees when they came to Jesus and they're trying to trap him? They said, hey, get what is the greatest of the commandments? What did Jesus do? He went back to Deuteronomy and he turns around and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then Jesus tied that second commandment and love your neighbor as yourself. You have those two commandments. And so John here turns around and he says, listen, uh, the old commandment you have heard, and yet I'm writing to you a new commandment. It's the truth is seen in him and in you because darkness is passing away and a new light is shining. What is the new commandment? Well, the new commandment that I believe that John is talking about here is a commandment of love. And we see that in verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. What makes it a new commandment? Well, it makes it a new commandment because the extent to which it is reached. It's the extent of which it is reached. Remember Jesus when they were, he and his disciples were walking through and they were walking through Samaria. They could have gone around, but Jesus decides to go through. And his disciples were out getting something to eat. Jesus stops and there's a woman at the well and he gets into conversation with her. And his disciples come back and they're amazed by that. That's an example of how the extent of love can be reached. It's an obligation that goes beyond. Jesus practiced that. But he goes beyond our comfort zones. Uh, the new commandment is the length to which, it would, to which it would go. How much did Jesus love us? He loved us so much he was willing to go to the cross. That, that was a great length, wasn't it? Holy, righteous, without sin, being willing to go to the cross to take our sins to the place where he would turn around and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one time, the one and only time in the existence, in the existence that there is ever a break between the Father and the Son was at that moment when he took our sins upon himself. That's, that's the length in which he would go. And the depth in which he would go to the degree at which it was realized comes in the fact that what we see here is that it's going to change our lives. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister. By the way, it doesn't, those two terms here are not referring to strangers. <laughs> those two terms are talking about those within the family of God, brothers and sisters. The very people that we should be loving or should have the, the closest relationship with. If anyone claims and does not love their brother and sister, there is nothing in them and they will stumble. But anyone who hates his brother or his sister in the darkness and walks around in darkness, they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. That's the warning. That's the warning. What is the test, the social test? It's our ability to love one another. So we have a moral test, which is obeying God's commands. We have a social test, which is loving one another. And then before we get to the last test, John does something really crazy. He just sort of stops, and he puts a, par par uh, a paragraph, a parenthesis around some things. 
And I'm wondering, this is my guess, I don't know, I don't know, I'll talk to John when I get to glory. I'll ask him about this one. But here's what I think. I think when John realized that when it comes to obedience to God and to loving others, he just sort of stopped, and this parenthesis that's here is really just a catch your breath and just remember, gang, is what he's doing. Notice what he says there. The reasons for writing, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on the account of his name. Okay, he's already shown that. Jesus has gone to the cross. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Okay, that which we can remember. I'm writing to young men because you have overcome the evil one. Okay, we're going to see that in just a minute. He's going to pick up on that one. But it's the evil one that tempts us. It's the evil one that goes and reminds us of our humanness and our sinfulness that's there. It's the evil one that goes and places that and, and puts doubt in our minds. He says, you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father, the relationship with God. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to young men because you are strong in the word. Remember, the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I just think he just sort of stops here and like, hey, let's remind where we come from. I want you to think of all the good things that are there. And then he goes on, and he gives a warning in verses 15 and 16 and 17. He says, do not love the world or anything there in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not him in them. What can disrupt our ability to go and stay focused on the word of God, the commands? What can disrupt our ability to love God the way he wants us to love? It's the enticement of the world around us. And notice what he says there. Anyone who loves the world, anyone who loves the world, anyone who loves the world, the Father is not in them. That's a harsh statement too, isn't it? Now, <clears throat> everything in the world, now he gives us what it is that he's referring to here. And he gives three things. He says the lust of the flesh, he says, the lust of the eye and the pride of life. Um, <clears throat> lust of the flesh. Um, bodily enjoyment, sexual desire, personal fulfillment. Now listen to this. Outside of God's intended will. Outside of God's intended will. Um, bodily enjoyment. He's given us a body to enjoy, but he wants us to do so within his will. Uh, Sexual desire, it's something that God's created in us. It's not something that, that, is, that is outside of his intended will. But how do we carry that out, and how do we fulfill that desire within his intended will? The lust of the flesh is fulfilling that outside of his intended will. Personal fulfillment, the lust of the flesh, that which would just make me happy. That is part of the world system, and that is what will draw us away from meeting those two tests. How about the lust of the eye? This is pretty simple. A desire to have anything outside of God's intended will. The lust of the eye. I see it. I like it. And you know something? Oftentimes, those are not bad things anyway in my life. And some of them are very good things. But when I desire it over God's will for me, it will draw me away from his word and draw me away from loving others as we should. 
and the pride of life, achieving or attaining a position or power, again, outside of God's intended will. There's nothing wrong with achieving. There's nothing wrong with a position. There's nothing wrong with power of influence using it for God's glory. But when we take it outside of his will, guess what? It draws our attention away. Okay. And he looks at this and he says, and he closes it out, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Just a reminder of how important it is to keep our focus on him. And then he wraps it up with the final test. And this is an interesting one, because the final test is a doctrinal test. And um, uh, he, he goes to something that I, I look at and I think, Johnny could have made it a lot easier for all of us. But he says, dear children, he said, this is the hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Hmm. This is how you know it's the last hour. Um, what in the world is he talking about? Okay. By the way, this is the only place in Scripture where the word Antichrist in this way is mentioned. And he does it, he mentions it uh, five times in four verses. But the concept isn't here alone. Uh, in fact, if you go back into Daniel chapter 7, remember Daniel and he had those visions and he had the beasts that were there and he talks in terms of that vision of the last evil figure that's there, okay? And he refers to that individual. He doesn't use the word antichrist, but he uses that figure that's there. Revelation chapter 13, it's described in greater detail and context. And there you, you find that this evil one that is described in Daniel chapter 7 is actually put into context in, in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, Mark 13, 22 through 23, Jesus speaks about a future fulfillment by mentioning a false Christ and false prophets. It's referring to this individual. And then Paul, over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, writes about this this man of lawlessness. So there is going to come a day where there's going to be a antichrist, and we see it in biblical history. That's not what John's talking about here. He's referring to an antichrist, but then he talks about the, this group of antichrists. He takes two words, Christ, and puts the prefix anti, which means either opposed or instead of. And he basically turns around and said, there's a whole bunch of people that are coming, they're antichrists, and this is how you're gonna know them. They went out from us. They did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. There's a group of people that come along and they were part of this group, but then they moved away. Why did they move away? Verse 20, but you, having an anointing of the Holy One, and all of you know the truth, do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know the truth. What is the truth? Well, the truth is found, whoever denies, or what is the, the lie? Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. What's the doctrinal test? The doctrinal test is recognizing who Jesus Christ is. That's the doctrinal test. There was a group of people in those days who were part of them, but they went out and they failed because they failed to recognize who Jesus Christ is. Why is that so important? Go back to verse 1 and 2, because he is our advocate. 
He was the atoning sacrifice. He is the one that stands before the Father who is holy and righteous. And when you take that out of the equation, you've taken Christianity and you've poured it apart, and there is no such thing as holiness without Jesus Christ. And so the doctrinal test here is, do you hold firmly to who Jesus Christ is? I love verse 24. As for you, see that you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and the Father. And this is what he promised to us, eternal life. The promise is, as we remain faithful, we have the promise of life eternal that's there. And John just sort of brings it all together. And as he brings it all together, he says, how do we defend against this heresy? We defend against this heresy by recognizing who Jesus Christ is, by going back to the word, that which they knew, that truth which they knew, and to be able to go and allow the Holy Spirit to go and work in their lives. He says in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. That's what happens when we don't keep these tests in order. And then he wraps it up. And he wraps it up with a reminder. And he says uh, in verses 28 and 29, Now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. That is really a definition of holiness right there. It's really a definition of holiness. To be able to continue in him, to be confident, unashamed before his coming. Why? Why? Because we follow his commands. Because we've been able to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And because we recognize who Jesus Christ is and has not departed from that. That's the essence of holiness that is running through here. And we do so so that we will not be ashamed. You know, as John starts to pull this together and as he, he sort of wraps this up, I think what he's trying to do between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is to take chapter 1 and remind us who we are and the fact that God is holy, he is light, and in ourselves we are in darkness. And yet we have the work of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. In chapter 2, he goes back through and he says, Now, let's test that out. Test that out in light of, am I obedient to his commands? Test that in light of, am I loving my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? Test that out, am I remaining faithful to who Jesus is as being the Son of God? Now, there's five minutes left. Four and a half. Here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to just turn to the neighbor next to you, or if there's a triad, you know, get two or three together, three in the triad. And here's what I want you to do. I got two questions for you. Number one, as you go and look at this, what does it tell you about God? Okay? We just talked for a half hour. What does this tell you about God? What is your takeaway about who God is? And then uh, number two is, what does it tell you about us in our community? as believers. Is there a takeaway that comes out of that? All right? So what is it telling you about God, and what is it telling you about us in the way we are to, we are to live our lives within community? All right? So let me just give you uh, three or four minutes to do that. 
find someone to talk to, when, you pull, when we come back together, I'd like to get one or two of your responses and uh, see what the second chapter of, of John actually meant to you tonight. All right? So find someone to talk to real quick. Okay, let's, uh, let me get some of your responses. As you were uh, thinking this through, what stood out? What does this tell us about God? What did it tell you about God? Any lessons or any aha moments? Anybody? I think it's refreshing for me to hear that. Because I think I need to remember. I just feel like John keeps saying the word remember, remember, mm -hmm. keep trying to remind. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's incredibly important for me to remind myself of mm -hmm. who Jesus is in my life. Mm -hmm. And what he's done for me. Yeah. And that God is the way I can stay close to him. He's mm -hmm. remembering those things. Yeah. It can get lost in the busyness, can it? Yeah. Yeah, it really can. Someone else, what's to tell us about God? Um, I think what it tells me about myself, it makes me a little nervous, honestly, when I first read it. Of like, <laughs> oh wow. I'm I don't meet the standard. Yeah. Um and then I think you like emphasize on the front, on the in the beginning part about how like through Jesus we have forgiveness, which mm -hmm. shouldn't motivate us to look at the past and be like, oh man, I mm -hmm. have to continue to work mm -hmm. and be like, I'm not good enough, I, I can't do it, I can't, yep. you know, be fully obedient, yep. but to look forward and be like, because I am forgiven, I can now try to follow Him best. So. Scary. <laughs> yeah. About my, you know, like my sinful state, but yeah. then reminding myself about like who Jesus is and the fact yeah. that He is like the full atonement. Yeah. For my sins. Um, yeah. Is relieving. Yeah. He's our advocate. He's our atonement. He is all of that, which then leads us into how do we live our lives, yeah, effectively. Yeah. How do the second question? Um, how do we live then in community? What does this passage talk about when we talk about living in community with one another in light of what God has done? Anything that stood out? I think like quick, just when you look at the, the three tests you brought up in the middle one of, of loving each other, I think love looks like, um, just as an example, holding each other accountable to these mm -hmm. three. Because you can look at it in your own life and apply mm -hmm. it in your own life and, and grow. Um, but then it, it looks differently when you um, take them into your relationships and, and build each other up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not easy sometimes to love each other, is it? No. We talk about it a lot. You know? <laughs> and we talk about, you know, that should be the mark of the believer. And yet, when we come down to it, it's sometimes very difficult. And here he's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. He's not talking about people outside of the world. You know? And yet, that is that, that, is that one area that, that he places there. And how is it even possible that I could love you, and you could love each other, and you could love me, how is that even possible? It's the first thing, yes. 
because he first loved us. And so we go back to, again, as we look at what Christ has done for us and to the great extent that he went, how much we can go and be like him as we engage with each other. Um, go back this week, read 1 John 1, 1 John 2, read 1 John 3 because I guess, I think Jack Wilson next week is going to open 1 John 3. So, and it builds. John just continues to build on that. Father, thank you for this evening and for your word. And take it, apply. Lord, sift through it, those things that you want us to forget. But Lord, highlight those things that you want us to take and apply over to our lives. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his work. We thank you, Father, for your holiness. And we thank you, Lord, that in those times where we struggle, that you give us reminders through these three tests of what it means to really live a life that's holy before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.